where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. As we continue our Peacemaker and Peace Practice series, our Peacemaker this morning is Wangari Muta Matai, who lived in Kenya. She was the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize winner, the first African woman to receive this award. And she was also the first woman from Kenya to earn a PhD, and it was in biology. Professor Matai is our storyteller this morning. So if there are any young people that are with you, you might want to invite them into the space so that they can hear this story. And I want to remind you that um, being from Kenya, Professor Matai's voice is beautifully melodious and may not be one that you are able to hear as easily as the voices that you're accustomed to. So I would invite you to do what I did when I first started listening to her is raise the volume or use the closed caption option. Let's turn now to Professor Matai and her story of the hummingbird. We are constantly being bombarded by problems that we face and sometimes we can get completely overwhelmed. The story of the hummingbird is about this huge forest being consumed by a fire. All the animals in the forest come up and they are transfixed as they watch the forest burning and they feel very overwhelmed, very powerless, except this little hummingbird. It says, I'm going to do something about the fire. So it flies to the nearest stream, takes a drop of water, and puts it on the fire, and goes up and down, up and down, up and down, as fast as it can. In the meantime, all the other animals, much bigger animals, like the elephant with a big trunk, could bring much more water. They are standing there helpless, and they are saying to the hummingbird, what do you think you can do? You're too little. This fire is too big. Your wings are too little. And you're big, so small. You can only bring a small drop of water at a time. But as they continue to discourage it, it turns to them without wasting any time and tells them, I'm doing the best I can. And that to me is what all of us should do. We should always feel like a hummingbird. I may feel insignificant, but I certainly don't want to be like the animals watching as the planet goes down the drain. I will be a hummingbird. I will do the best I can. Wangari Muta Matai was known to many as Tree Mother. And it was her mother who first planted seeds that God abounded, that God existed in great quantity, living in the fig trees and the vines, in the soil that provided food, in the rain that kept the soil moist. 
Her mother taught her to love nature because nature was a manifestation of God. And this lesson was reinforced in the Christian missionary school that Wangari attended. It was reinforced through scripture. You don't have to look very far in Christian scriptures to find this message that nature was the manifestation of God. Genesis chapter 1 is really all you need. Where we have one of the creation stories that notes that it was God's breath that became voice that made the distinction between day and night. That separated the waters above from the waters below that gathered the waters below to make the seas and to also expose the land. And that on that land, God's voice that became breath became vegetation and fruit trees. And there were the two great lights, the one that ruled the day that we know as the sun and the one that ruled the night that is the moon, and then the stars. The breath that became word also called into being sea life and birds of the air, the cattle and the wild animals of the land. Nature was indeed the manifestation of God. And nature also is what we as people are called to protect and to serve and to live in harmony with. Wangari studied in the United States. She was a Kennedy scholar, and she was gone for a period of time. And when she returned to Kenya, she was shocked by the changes that she saw. She saw that entire forests had been cut down, that rains had washed away the rich soil, that rivers were constrained with sediment, that the farmers had fled to the urban centers for resources and any hope of employment. It reminded me of a hike that Beth and I were on very recently. We went to Twin Sisters in Estes Park. And if you've done that hike, um, what you know, I don't know whether it's about a mile up maybe, you see the washed out portion that was the result of a mudslide from the 2013 flood. There were four of us on the hike and we we literally stopped, not just to catch our breath, but we stopped to ask the question, what happened? What caused this devastation? You could tell that it was not sort of a natural or predicted moment. So we guessed, I don't know, was it an avalanche? Was it the flood? It turned out to be a mud avalanche or a mudslide, as I already said, but it was striking, and it caused us to pause. And what was left in that spot seemed extremely vulnerable, large rocks that it was hard to determine how they were even staying there. And it was later when we looked into it that we understood what had happened the course of events. That experience allows me to impart, imagine the grief that Wangari felt upon returning to her country and seeing the devastation. 
And I think now is an important moment in our life, in our national story, in our world story, to be aware of grief, to recognize that there is devastation. There are fires that we are seeing, not just connected to the environment, but as a Nobel Peace Prize winner, it's important to remember that this environmental ministry of Wangari is very much connected to resources and power. as are many of the other fires that we're experiencing. So allow ourselves and allow yourself a moment of grief to recognize that and to feel that. There's an environmental truism that says the generation that destroys the environment is not the generation that pays the price. And how that translated for Wangari was that the people in charge were not looking ahead to the effects of their decision two to three generations down the line. By comparison, those who were living in poverty, their job was not to look, or their, their capacity was not to look two to three generations down the line. Because when you're living in poverty, you're not worried about tomorrow, you're worried about today. You're worried about the next meal or any kind of warmth or shelter that can be provided. And this produces a cycle. If you have people who are in power who are neglecting their responsibility to look ahead to the effects of decision-making and to curb any greed that might be at work or self-interest that is at work, and then you have people who are poor who are looking at that one last tree and saying, fire, I need fire, so we can cook. The cycle is that the more you degrade, the more you mismanage, and the more you mismanage, the deeper the poverty. And it is that cycle of poverty that Wangari Mutamatai tried to influence, and she did influence it. First, she tried to influence the people in leadership, saying, look at this situation, look at this fire that has consumed our land, look at the people living without resources. She tried to call attention to this need for fresh air, for clean water, for fertile soil, for resources, people willing to work, willing to be engaged and not able to. And to her surprise, there was resisting. She could not understand why the people in charge would resist this. Because the benefit of those in need also brings benefit to those who have. It's not an either-or situation. We all benefit from a society and a people where we have access and opportunity and we are all taking our responsibilities seriously. So she quickly understood that changing the people at the top is very, very difficult. The people beneath, the ones suffering and paying the price now, is where she directed her effort. 
I'm guessing some of you are hearing this about other fires, not just environmental right now, and that's good because it applies. But I'm going to stay with Wangari's story for now and talk about the environment, but it translates. So she didn't know where to start. She had seen and understood the situation, experienced her grief, and wanted to move to action. And she decided to begin by praying because she didn't know what else to do. And she remembered something that she learned as a very young person. Every forest begins with a single seed. And she began planting trees. This became the Green Belt Movement, which focused on poverty reduction and environmental conservation through tree planting. It was a grassroots initiative, which sounds different to me now. I've always thought, yeah, grassroots. Well, now think of that as the Earth's surface. Start with the Earth, with the surface of the Earth. It began at the bottom, on the ground. And she began organizing groups of rural women and teaching them to grow tree seedlings. And the deal was, if the seedling survives, you will receive a token of appreciation. She said, we didn't go with a bowl of money. We went to teach and to enlist. And we were not able to pay for every hour that they would put into this work, but we were able to provide an incentive and a token of appreciation. And these tasks had an effect on many levels. Wangari says, when you plant a tree and see it grow, something happens to you. You love it, and you want to protect it. I only have one experience of planting a tree, and it was at our last home in Guilford, Connecticut. And there have been several times when Beth and I would turn to each other and say, I wonder how that tree is doing. I can remember cutting the little grass around the tree so that it would be able to sprout up and get the sun and the and the, and the moisture. And I bet some of you have pictures of yourself growing next to a tree. At some point, you reached your max and the tree kept going. And maybe you're in the middle of doing that now. But it's true, something does happen. And not just the internal, you love it and want to protect it, but it drastically improved the watersheds, the planting of these trees, and the soil, and the food and resources. It led to vital farms and a green countryside. But it wasn't overnight. This is not something you plant and walk away from, and you're done. Over the course of three decades, there were 40 million trees planted. 40 million trees. Remember the hummingbird? This movement included the stark realization that there is a great fire. And the great love for that which was on fire and the grief that ensued led to the little hummingbird going and taking one drop of water or one seed, if you will, and trying to make 
and impact. Doing the best it can. The onlookers, the onlookers were organized and instructed. And it took time and perseverance. This is where the endurance, the ultra-athletes come in. We push ourselves, don't we, for those triple bypasses and those long runs in the mountains or those marathons. Imagine this from the creator's perspective. Imagine being the one that created the trees and the fruit and the vegetation and the people and the fish and the sun and the moon and the stars. When you create something and see it grow, something happens to you. You love it. You want to protect it. You want it to thrive. What will your little thing be? Our environmental justice team has a little thing. And Kristen is going to share a message with us. Hi, my name is Kristen. I am a member of UCC's newly formed Environmental Justice Ministry. Pastor Sarah asked me here today to talk about our theme, Planting for Peace, and more specifically about a vegetable garden project that the Environmental Justice Ministry is proposing. So I'll start at the beginning. Last year, when Greta Thunberg was traveling the world sounding the alarm about the climate emergency, I felt compelled to better comprehend just how much we produce in the way of greenhouse gases. To help this understanding, I decided to translate carbon produced into trees. Let me explain. According to the American Forest Foundation, a large tree, 2.5 meters in circumference by 28 meters in height, holds 1,493 kilograms of carbon in its structure. The average American produces, conservatively, 13,000 kilograms of carbon per year, or the equivalent of burning 8.7 trees. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Now, if you multiply that by the population of the United States, 327.2 million people, that means our carbon production is like burning 2.8 billion trees per year. That's just in the U.S. alone. Having done this calculation and weathered the subsequent panic attack, I started making small changes in my life. Trying more vegetarian meals, vegan baking, choosing plastic alternatives where possible since plastic is made from oil, buying carbon credits from the Arbor Day Foundation, paying for renewable energy through LPC, and walking more instead of driving. This last was what led me to the Environmental Justice Ministry. I mentioned to Julie Nosick the reason why I was walking, and her response was one of encouragement. She urged me to read Active Hope, a Joanna Macy book about strengthening our resolve for the battle against climate change. And I joined the list of those interested in an environmental ministry. From the start, our whole group had a big wish list. Sign up for renewable energy through Longmont Power and Communications, Explore solar panels for our roof, 
grow a green wall on the west side of the church, promote bicycling and walking, host educational events, look into carbon farming, and partner with a farmer to make part of our lawn into a food garden. We couldn't do it all at once, so we chose two items from the list. John Rosticus began exploring solar panels for our roof. There is more to come on this. And Mary Mayer found an article about a business called Boundless Landscapes, which would plant and maintain a 40 foot by 50 foot food garden for us on our property. The more we considered the Boundless Landscapes arrangement, the more excited we became. Here was an opportunity to reduce our fossil fuel maintained lawn area, a chance to sequester more carbon on our property through organic farming practices, a way to further support jeopardized birds and pollinators, an opportunity to additionally reduce greenhouse gas emissions by producing food right where it's going to be used rather than shipping it long distances an occasion to educate the community and provide employment for local teenagers, and a new way to provide food for low-income families. In permaculture practice, otherwise known as permanent agriculture or even permanent culture, this would be called stacking uses. Everything we do has more power if we can find multiple benefits to reap from that one action. To me, this is a Planting for Peace project. If we truly have the intent to bring about positive change, we must learn to stack uses to do things that benefit all beings and all of our planet. Our world is more and more literally on fire. The task before us seems overwhelming, but we must all become the hummingbirds, putting our water droplets on the fire. I am so proud to be part of a church community that takes action caring for all humankind and for all of God's beautiful creation. It is through quiet, peaceful actions, such as planting a garden, that we can find the power to change the world.